continue worship by reading from Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going by that road, going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, he said? The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Take a second before you have a seat to greet one another. And we're also going to... He's about to preach a sermon on CR. I'm getting after it. Anytime. Good job, man. Yeah. Good morning. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're with us. If you're new, I'd love to shake your hand before you leave, if you'd like that. Um, If you have your Bibles, open them to Luke 10, uh, verse 25, and hold it there uh, while we set it up. If you recall, um, March, almost four years ago, it's hard to believe, something was happening in the earth. Do you remember what was happening about four years ago in March? A little little sickness was going around, a little cold was going around. The pandemic, right? All the shut, shutting down. Everything shut down in March about four years ago. It's crazy. Um, and as we were all sitting and twiddling our thumbs in our houses, I thought, you know, I got those canned lights that I was going to put in the basement. I'm just going to go pop them in real quick, babe. I'm just going to pop these canned lights. I'll be right back. The next second, I was ripping out drywall and walls and putting a supporting beam in the basement. I remodeled the entire basement. It's, it's, it was amazing. I finished about 80% of it. I got like the big area done. I convinced my wife we should move down there and we did, it's amazing. But there's this little area behind the stairs, like on the other side of the stairs that I, I just lost my steam. You know, I just never finished it over there. And so it's like a little smaller area. And, but like, you know, the wall is missing. You can see dirt in the crawl space, dry, you know, insulations hanging out of the wall and the bare cement floor. But it, like when you go down the stairs, you turn to the right. So you just don't see it. So, you know, whatever, never saw it. And literally y'all, Three years, it stayed that way. Bare cement floor, like wires hanging out of the wall, right? And people would come over and I'd be like, babe, I want to show them the basement. She's like, dude, it's not done. I was like, oh God. And I'd take them down there and I'd show them all the good stuff. And then they'd be like, is that dirt? Do I? Like, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that is dirt over there. You can see dirt. And they're like, is that a wire? Is that hot? And I was like, no, I don't mean, 
don't touch it. I don't think it's hot. You know, <laughs> like wires hanging out of the wall. Um, it's remarkable how when you get used to something, you don't even see it anymore. All right, raise your hand if you have a project in your house that's incomplete. Because, and, okay, I knew it. I knew it, right? Like wives are like elbowing, you never finished, you know. Um, when, when it becomes a part of the landscape, you're like, you barely even see it, right? Um, because you're so familiar with it. Sometimes, y'all, um, familiarity doesn't breed contempt. It just brings blindness to the thing. Uh, now, I'm happy to say I finally finished the basement this past fall, uh, mostly, like 95%. Like, the trim's not done yet, but who cares? You know, who can see that? Um, but I say all that to say this. Um, today, we're going to look at one of those topics in Scripture that is so fundamental it's so basic to Christianity. It has become so common, so well-known that we run the risk of missing it in plain sight. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and, it, and it takes someone often like an unbeliever coming in the room and pointing it out. You know, like you, it says this, but you guys act like this, right? Many Christians get to the point uh, where they don't even see this thing anymore that we're going to talk about. So common part of the landscape. Uh, the teaching, in fact, that we're going to deal with today is so common um, that you don't have to be a Christian to know it. Um, tons of totally irreligious people can quote bits of the passage that we just read. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through it together. Slowly, read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little, and then see if maybe we here in this place have fallen prey to the blindness of familiarity that can so often happen in Scripture. You guys cool? Okay, let's do it. Luke, verse 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I'm going to read a bit. We're going to talk. Read a bit. Talk. Cool? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, side note, uh, what can you do to, have, to get an inheritance, period? An inheritance is something you receive as a kid. Fascinating. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Um, so Jesus, so the guy comes with a question. Jesus answers with a question. He routinely does this. Um, as if when you go to scripture, when you come to God with a question, Jesus, God is often like, hey, actually, uh, the ball's in your court on this one. You've been given a mind. You have the power of reason. Uh, in the end, you're going to have to be the person who makes a choice about the Bible, about how you read it. What do you think the Bible's all about, Jesus says? In other words, Jesus turns it around and says, what do you think the Bible's getting after? How do you read it? That's the question. What do you think it's all about? How you interpret and read the Bible uh, will dictate your experience of it. You know that? What you think about the Bible as you open it up will dictate how you're experiencing it. So God could rightly be asking all of us today, what do you think about the Bible? How do you read it? What do you think it's all about? What, it's all, what do you think it's all getting after? But the question here the guy is asking is, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? The fact that Jesus points him to the Old Testament is actually very interesting. You want to be alive? It's all in the book right there. So the lawyer answers this. His, this is what the lawyer thinks the Bible's all about. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. The language there, you will live, is active presence. It, it, present, it's you will be living. You'll be doing life if you do this. 
So the educated man quotes, I don't know if you know this, he quoted two Old Testament passages. He quoted Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.8, and he pushed them together. Do you know that this combination of two commands is together nowhere else in the Old Testament? Nowhere are these commands pushed together in the Old Testament, but this guy connects it. And almost every gospel, these two ideas, loving God and loving neighbor, these two ideas, this connection is made explicit by Jesus in almost every other gospel as well. All of a sudden, when Jesus comes on the scene, he starts saying, hey, there's a connection between your love of God and your love of your brother. He's making this connection. In Matthew, uh, this similar occurrence happens Someone's asked Jesus, Jesus, what do you think the greatest command is? And Jesus quotes these same two scriptures. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he says this, a second is like it. In other words, just as important. The second one, it's similar. It's connected to you. It's in the same category. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says this huge sweeping statement that helps us understand how Jesus read his Bible. Ready for this? He says, on these two commandments depends, hangs all the law and the prophets. Now, this is actually very fascinating. Your translation might say hangs. Does anyone, is your Bible open? Anyone have hangs, depends, hangs in almost Every other place, that word hangs, um, it, the Greek word used there is literally translated hangs, like to hang on something, right? It means, guys, this is fascinating how Jesus thought about the Bible. The whole thing hangs on, is sustained, it's resting on this idea of loving God and loving your neighbor. It's a very shocking statement to digest it. There's one thing Jesus says that all of the Bible is about. It's fascinating. Think about it with me. All the codes, all the rules, he says, are hanging on this. Love of God, love of neighbor. Everything, it's about that. It's all getting to that. It's about this. Now, I wanted to give you a visual because I'm a very visual person. Check it out. Love of God, love of neighbor, everything, all right? Purity laws, diet laws, civil laws, moral laws, all of it's resting on this one thing, this one, what's the thing that gives that structure? Oh, it's the thing on top. Everything's resting on it. It's hanging from it. If that one thing collapses, what happens to all that stuff? It all goes down, right? There's one thing, Jesus says, that it's all about, and it's expressed in two ways. Love, love of God, love of neighbor. All of the Bible is getting after that. This is how Jesus read his Bible. He's saying if you're not the kind of person who loves God and loves other people, the whole thing is shattered. You're not doing it right. It's resting on this. Love of God and love of neighbor. What's the motivation of the whole deal? Why obey? Why treat others well? Why be moral? Why not lie? Why not lust? According to Jesus, it's all in the name of love. All those rules hang on, depend on. The weight of the motivation is resting on the love of God and love of neighbor. It's really a fascinating statement. And I think we don't realize how big it is because we're just going to, well, of course, we just make sense, right? Maybe it's better visualized this way. The entire Bible only works when it's hanging on the love of God. The whole thing. Hanging on love of neighbor. It's why he gave us the book, y'all. So that in a fallen world, me and you might find ourselves through the darkness to be kinds of people who love neighbor and love God. 
We might be those kind of people. That's what it's all about, according to Jesus. If you take the Bible off that hanger, you've defeated the purpose of the whole book. If your reading isn't motivated by love of God, love of neighbor, you've defeated the entire purpose of the book itself, according to Jesus. It's fascinating if you sit down, slow down, think about it. If, guys, hello, wake up. There's, there, is, there is such a thing as rising early for the love of God. There is such a thing as sacrificing and giving yourself to others in the name of the love of God. And if, you're not, if your Christian life is not motivated by love of God and love of neighbor, Jesus says you've missed it. The entire structure is collapsing. You've missed it. There's no structure to it. It's all laying on the floor. Do you understand what he's saying? You've become blind. Distracted, maybe, by all the good and necessary details of religious upkeep. But if, you're, if your life is not aimed at, focused on, motivated to love God and to love others, don't even read it, he says. Well, he doesn't say that. I say that, sorry. Right? That was me, not, okay. If you don't, y'all, if you don't all out love God, and if you don't love others, it just, the whole thing falls apart. A lot of us, when our Christian life's not going well, we ask questions like, well, my preacher stinks. When our Christian life's not going well, we ask questions like, well, I just need to read the Bible. I just need to buckle down. I need to do the things that pastor says I should do. Well, I just need to pray. And we, and we say, what do we do? We, listen, we mount up on a moral campaign, don't we? I want to get better at doing Christianity. Okay, well, what's that mean? Well, you need to read your Bible. According to this, you need to start looking outside and loving other people. If you want to do better as a Christian, you need to warm your heart towards God. This is fascinating, y'all. I'm a visual person. That helps me. If not, thanks for humoring me. Now, I'm taking too much time on this word, but let me point out one very geeky thing about this word, hang. Um, it's used seven, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Krianonomi, I don't know. It's used seven times in the New Testament. Check it out. Four out of the seven times it's used, it is, talked, it is used when it's talking about hanging someone on a cross. Crucifixion. Fascinating. Galatians 3.13, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Acts 10.39, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. As if God was expressing the thing that all the law and the prophets hang on by hanging his son on a tree. So Jesus says, you've answered rightly. If you do this, you'll live. You'll live. You'll be alive. But he, the religious expert, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? So this is a fascinating thing, what's happening right here. And we know his motives because it tells us he's trying to justify himself. So he's saying, yes, 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 Jesus. We all agree. The law is about loving God and loving neighbors. And it's all hanging on that. And that's great. Hey, listen, for me, I'm an expert of the law. Loving God's easy, right? I'm a professional Christian. But who's my neighbor? Like, who do I really need to love? Surely you don't mean everyone. Like, be reasonable, right? Who exactly when it says he's wishing to justify himself, it means he wants to prove that he loves the right people. That's what he wants to do. Jesus, agree with me that certain people are love worthy and other people's are not. Agree with me that I'm loving the right people and that I'm doing all the things that I need to be doing. Agree with me. Justify me. 
That's what it means. He wants to prove that he is loving his neighbors. And so let's get right who that is. So Jesus tells this story. Dude, Jesus was brilliant, man. Jesus was brilliant. Do you think Jesus was smart? Do you think Jesus was smart? It's difficult listening to a man if you don't think he's smart. Jesus was brilliant. Listen to this story. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him, stripped him, beat him, and left him for dead. Got it? Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side of the road. So likewise, a Levite, and when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, Samaritan came to where he was, saw him, had compassion on him, went to him. Do you notice it says came to where he was twice? Twice the Samaritan moved towards the injured man, it says. Bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, his animal, his, the thing that he owned that was made to make his burden easy, carry him. Oh, he, he sat him on that. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus looks to the lawyer again, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It's very fascinating. Um, notice what the lawyer does not say. Does he say the Samaritan? Mm -mm. He can't bring himself to say Samaritan. I'm about to tell you why. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, this is a very contextual story, y'all. Now, the story works by itself plenty fine. You know what a priest is. I don't know what a Levite is. I don't know who a Samaritan is. Probably just a regular Joe. It works fine by itself. But if you know a little bit of context, it gets you right between the eyes. Because I love you. I want to do that to you. So I'm going to give you some context. All right? There are well-known categories of people in any given society. We tracking? Well-known categories of people. If I started a joke with a Republican and a Democrat walking a bar, okay, you have a type, got it? If I say a Catholic priest and a cross-dresser walking a bar, okay, your mind just populated what those people look like. We have categories for that, got it? Your mind populates the image. Those are the types of people. Okay, so what popped in the minds of the people hearing Jesus? What are the categories of these people? Let's go through it. The first man uh, is just a man. The first character in the story, guys, you know nothing about this guy. It's just a man, any generic man. We don't know anything about him. There's never given a name, all right? He, he probably has like a real generic name like Gary or something like that. He, he, <laughs> you just wait. Uh, the guy in the story who's beaten <laughs> doesn't talk. We don't know where he's from. You know how you knew where people are from? They have accents. He doesn't talk in the story. You don't know his name. He doesn't have, what's the other signifying thing about people? How they dress. 
How you dress? Are you rich or are you poor? Well, how does he dress? We don't know. We know nothing about this dude. He is stripped of all identifying social class. All, is he wealthy? Is he poor? Is he Jewish? Is he Gentile? No ethical, no social, no cultural points of reference. Y'all, Jesus is brilliant, all right? This man is intentionally left ambiguous. It could be anyone. And he's going down a road well known for hijackers, a notoriously dangerous road. If when he said the road to Jerusalem to Jericho, they all said, oh, that's a bad road. We don't know. Don't go down that road alone. The second character is a priest. Now, we also have a category for priests. That makes enough sense. He's a religious professional. He's a leader in church. He speaks at events, leads Bible studies. He's the guy you ask to pray when you're eating with your family, right? So just to help you, go ahead. Okay, fine. So, so that guy, that guy, are we done? All right, all right. He sees this man left for dead, right? He knows what happened to him. It's a dangerous road. All the more reason to keep moving. He doesn't want to get his own self hijacked. All right. But secondly, what we don't know about this guy is it's really important for him to be ritually clean, There's purity laws. If this guy gets within four feet of a corpse or touches any bodily fluids, he is ceremonially unclean. You know what he has to do then? Well, he has a whole week. He has to go through all the rituals. He can't go to church. He's not going to be able to show up on Sunday to preach the word of God because he got himself ceremonially unclean by touching this guy. So so it's a whole thing. He thinks this guy, (laughs) he thinks knowing God is all about ceremonial purity. Being a follower of God is about keeping yourself clean, untainted by the world, right? He's sort of right, isn't he? Theologian Kenneth Bailey says this, the priest, this guy, he's struggling with being a good man because his definition of a good man is ceremonially clean, right? And here's the problem. It puts him at odds with caring for another person. What? You're telling me that this dude's, it's not that this dude is apathetic. It's not that he's some meanie. It's his theology that is stopping him from loving someone. Dude, the Bible is so deep and profound. This guy's struggling to do the right thing. And so he takes a wide berth. Notice, he, he, it's not that he just walks by. No, he has to, he, you know, there's this whole thing. Hey, let's go out of your way to help someone. He goes out of his way to avoid someone to remain ceremonially clean, right? Uh, He says, Kenneth Bailey says this, therefore he, this man, is a victim of the rule book. He is a victim of an ethical system. And he doesn't just walk by, he goes out of his way to avoid. Um, Because guys, duh, Christianity is all about not breaking the rules, right? I mean, or maybe it's because he wasn't on the clock. You know, he loves people on the clock. You know, after, after five, I'm not going to love anyone. You know, we don't know uh, all the reasons, but all we know is this professional Christian doesn't lift a finger to help this dude. Now, the third is a Levite. He's not quite as prestigious as a priest. You know, he looks sharp, right? Got a suit on. Uh, but he's a religious man nonetheless. He's of the chosen, t- chosen tribe of Levi. He's a priestly family. But he's not like a full-time Christian. But he's a classy guy. He's no bum when it comes to the stuff of God. So we'll just do this. This guy fills in when the preacher's out, you know? So like, he's a, he's a legit dude. This guy takes his cues from the religious authority. So he does the same thing, right? Um, 
The last character, I'm not going to say much about Levi, I don't want to offend anyone, you know. The, the, too late, too late. Uh, the last character that we see in this story is a Samaritan. Um, now, to someone, again, who just picks up the Bible and reads the story, there's not much clues about who this guy is or where he comes from. We know, we know the story is called the what, Samaritan? The Okay, good. Excellent. He's the guy who did right. So we just think, well, this guy must be an average guy. Um, listen, listen. Jesus' audience would have been holding back throw up when he said good Samaritan. Check it out. This is fascinating. Uh, it would have almost been as bad as during World War II telling a story about a noble Nazi. Or today, in the Middle East, telling a Palestinian a story about a noble Israeli, which, by the way, that conflict is rooted in the conflict right here that we're talking about today. Or, in the Bible Belt South, telling a story about a noble cross-dresser. Or, a noble Islamic terrorist, post-9-11. That is the cultural weight that would have hit the audience of Jesus. The Samaritan is no normal person. The cultural equivalent would be someone you find religiously repugnant, immoral, despised, someone that everybody hates. You know, every, you know the people that everybody, like we all know who to hate, right, in culture and society. And, but this person is someone that you hate with, listen, religious justification. In other words, you're using your religion to uphold your hate of this person. That is exactly what a Samaritan is. And if you think I'm taking it too far, well, I have some really educational quotes for you. Um, here we go, quoting. The centuries of animosity between Jews and Samaritans are reflected in the wisdom of Ben Sirach, which is an apocrypha book, 2200 BC. It's not in our Bible, but it was in the Septuagint back then. And it says this, there are two nations my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of, Saint, of Mount Seir, the Philistines, and the stupid people living at Shechem. Guess where Samaritans lived? Shechem. Another holy book, the Mishnah, the Jews Jew still today uh, uh, is holy to them. Uh, it says this, he who eats the bread of the Samaritans, in other words, buys bread from a Samaritan, is like one who eats the flesh of swine. Jews don't eat pigs, right? Uh, the Samaritans, y'all, had... Um, Another commentator added, I learned this this week. The Samaritans had actually added a commandment to the ten, to 10 commandments. They had 11 commandments. And one of them was that you had to worship on their holy mountain. Uh, fascinating. And what's also fascinating is that their temple on their holy mountain, the Jews destroyed 100 BC. And to get back at them, guess what the Samaritans did? During Passover, uh, they went into the Jewish temple and drugged dead bodies into this Jewish temple and defiled the Jewish temple. One historian writes, the Samaritans were publicly cursed in church, synagogue. And a petition was daily offered up, praying to God that the Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. Uh, you giggle, but you know it, bro, like in the, on the pulpit from, in America, there's, we, get, we can get there, not too far from that, right? Praying curses on certain people because we don't like him. Y'all, in the Jewish mind, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Jesus, think about it. 
Jesus was taking great risk at telling a story like this. No wonder his audience, you should read the Bible and like, why are they trying to kill him? This is why. <laughs> They're like, he just told a story and they want to throw him off a cliff. Duh. This is what's going on. Routinely, they try to kill him, hang him off a cliff, or just, they just ask him to leave. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. Right? All through the Bible, this happens, right? This parable, y'all, would have been horribly disorienting to his audience. They, not only does the hated Samaritan heal the, and bind the man's wounds and take him to safety and pay for his housing, but he takes him into a town and puts him in an inn. Y'all, this would have been at his own risk of his own life. Uh, one commentator noted it would have been like the equivalent of a Plains Indian in 1875 riding into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy on his horse, checking him into a room at the local salon and staying the night to take care of him. Like that boy ain't gonna live to the morning. Right? So you see all of this is compounding on the, on the hearers, right? Okay, so what's it all mean? It's a whole lot. Let me just point out two things. One of the things that Jesus is clearly pointing out is this. You guys have disconnected the first and second great commandment that, he, that he, sa he says. You've disconnected them. This is what he means. You think, I can love God perfectly well. I can be faithful, I can worship, I can pray, I can follow Jesus, I can read my Bible, I can give Jesus my burdens, he takes them, praise his name, without ever doing anything for anyone else. I can be religious, I can be a deep thinker, I can lead worship, I can lead small group, and I never have to be inconvenienced for others. I don't need to carry other burdens, I don't need to carry other people's burdens, that's what Jesus does for me, right? Jesus is addressing this idea that you can love God deeply without loving others deeply. And he's saying, no, you cannot. No, you cannot. The followers of Jesus would pick up on this so uh, dramatically that in 1 John 4, 20, they'd say this. If anyone says, if you say, I love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. Thanks, John. Glad I came to church today. For he who does not Love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Jesus wants these two things inseparable in your mind. It's why he'd say, have you ever read some really weird things Jesus says? Stuff like this. Hey, if you give a cup of water to the least of these in my name, you've given it to, unto me. You read that? Or have you read where he says, you know, when you visited me in prison, and when you fed me when I was hungry, and they're like, when did we visit? You were in prison, Lord? What, what, what'd you do, right? Jesus isn't leveling some pantheistic God is everyone and everyone is God nonsense. He's saying, if you love me, but don't love other people, then you actually don't love me at all. Because if you love me, you'll obey me. And what does he say? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Or you could say it this way. If you as a person, as a happy-go-lucky Christian, have no compassion towards others, no desire to meet others' needs, Jesus would say, well, it's because you don't love God. Why don't you love God? Well, because you don't know that he loves you. Think about it. Think about it. Stay with me. If you think about all that God has done for you, what did Jesus do for us? Took our burden, sin and guilt, shame. He took it off our shoulders. Oh, he moved towards us in the incarnation. Oh, he binds our wounds. Oh man, he lifts our burdens. He carries us. 
He provides for us. And then he says, I'm going to come back. He gives us peace, joy. You guys see the connection? All the while, while we know we don't deserve it. In other words, you were needy. And Jesus met your needs. He deals with the same thing in the parable of the unmerciful servant. Remember that one? Unmerciful servant? And go read it. It's, fan- it's fantastic. When God forgives you when he meets your needs, when God does that to you, listen, here, stay with me. When God does that to you, you can always, always, always sympathize with needy people. Do you know why? Because when you see someone who needs compassion, you see yourself. You know that you need compassion, that you had needs that God met. And God's compassion can flow out of you when we live like that. And if you don't, if you're not into this, if you think, well, this is social gospel nonsense, well, I'd say this. Uh, what did Jesus do around needy people? How did he respond to some random guy who asks for help? Jesus, y'all, read the gospels again. Jesus was inconvenienced all the time. He stopped, he prayed for people, helped people, took their burdens, made them light. Okay, so here's my question for you, and maybe this will make you as uncomfortable as it does me. How do you think you can follow someone without actually following them? Like, have you ever played follow the leader? Have you ever played follow the leader? Play that game? Follow the leader, you know. And they do that, and you walk, and you turn around, and they turn around. You ever played follow the leader? To follow someone is to follow them. Isn't Christianity all about following Jesus? Read the Gospels again and answer me how you can follow him without actually following him, without actually living the way he lived. Number two, if you think caring for others and meeting others' people's need is not something you're called to because that's social gospel, humanitarian nonsense, and you're reformed, you know, you know we got to preach the Bible, and preach the gospel, not just meet people's needs. Okay, that's, I hear you. When's the last time you preached the gospel, anyone? Number one. <laughs> Number two, be careful you're not using your theology to justify never having to care about anyone. Let me say it this way. No one wants to be the guy who leads Bible study and then verbally abuses his kids and wife on the way home. Do you know how you become that guy? By disconnecting the love of God and love of neighbor. By separating the two. Second observation. What is Jesus doing here? Well, he's answering the question, who is your neighbor? Right? Is that right? Don't say that? Yeah, he's answering. He's answering this question. Who's your neighbor? And I want to get real practical here. Um, The temptation when reading the Good Samaritan is to read it uh, metaphorically only. You know what I'm talking about? So, so my neighbor is simply, my neighbor is a metaphor for like anyone who's in trouble, right? That's a safe interpretation. For sure, totally. That's totally it. Yes, this nameless, faceless guy was in trouble. He met the needs. So it means anyone, right? If they're in trouble, go meet their needs. Now, here's the problem of where Christians happen with this one right here. If this means, okay, just anyone who's in trouble ever, any suffering You need to go meet their needs. It's true. But one problem with this is in our day is the internet. This is what I mean by this. In the information and social media age, you can now come in contact with the suffering of hundreds and thousands of people as if you were right there through videos and pictures, can't you? Watch the news. You are inundated, not with good news, 
with bad news, with droughts in China, with economic crisis in the Middle East, with wars here and wars there, and you know, globe, all the things, right? And if we can become so overwhelmed at the excess of suffering and information, we either become desensitized to it, or so overwhelmed by the deluge of need, we, are, we become hopeless and we do nothing. What can one person do amongst, amongst, amidst such suffering in the world? And so do you know what we do? You know what we do when all the suffering and stuff, or we're seeing it on the thing? Just scroll up. <laughs> A kitten. Oh, that's great. Right? <laughs> scroll up again. Oh, it's an otter. It's an otter. Oh, oh, he's a baby otter. Oh, he's holding hands. Oh, right? <laughs> So there's a challenge at reading the Good Samaritan simply metaphorically. Here's another challenge that uh, Jay Pathak says. Um, if we read the Good Samaritan only metaphorically, if it means, you know, only meaning the, the metaphorical neighbor. In the book, Art of Neighboring, he says this. He asserts this really, really simple proposition about this teaching of Jesus that we're all familiar with. He says this, this horrible question. <laughs> what if Jesus actually meant what he said? In other words, what if it's not metaphor? What if he really means your neighbor? Like, like the people that live beside you. What if he means that? You're like, well, yeah, the language is pretty clear. It seems like that's a possibility. What if he means literally the people that live? Now, this is fascinating. I, I'll be honest. I'd be surprised if any of us today have actually thought about your real neighbors despite the fact Jesus has clearly said your neighbor, anyone? The, the, your, the Jesus has clearly said your neighbor several times. This is what Jay says. When we don't take Jesus' commands literally, we turn the great commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, into nothing more than metaphor. See, we have a metaphorical love for our metaphorical neighbor. And the communities we actually live in change, but metaphorically, of course, which means nothing changes. Listen, there's lots of beautiful metaphors in the Bible, beautiful, stunning, breathtaking metaphors. Uh, but Jesus warned in various ways um, that it's totally possible to read the entire Bible in a way that it makes no real impact in your life. He continuously warned about this. You can read the Bible in a way that it makes, you have to make no adjustments. You don't have to love others. You don't have to care. You don't have to meet anyone's needs. You can read it merely as metaphor. And it's great. Some of it is that, and it's beautiful. But this is a pretty radical question. What if Jesus literally meant your neighbors? Like your co your act the people that actually live next to you, that you do life with in proximity, like the person in the cubicle next to you at work, the people that live next to you next door. Y'all, for most people, our neighbors are nameless, faceless people. Are they not? The, car, the garage door opens, the car goes in, the garage door closed. You saw the back of him once when he got his mail, right? It's totally not your fault, for sure. I mean, it's how our society has structured itself, and we all have to deal with the isolating tendencies that our society breeds. But what if for you to actually follow Jesus, to obey what he says, it means reaching out in love in the community in which you actually live? It's not a radical statement, but it feels radical, doesn't it? You're like, wait, wait, wait. You mean like, go knock on their door? <laughs> like, actually go have a real conversation with a real person? Yes! Yes! Get off social media and have a real conversation with a real person. It's terrifying, isn't it? We don't know. Is it going to be awkward? Yes. Like, what if he just means like, love your neighbor, like take him a cookie. 
Like, will it be awkward? Yes. Will you ever get that cookie platter back? No, you know? But dude, what if it's worth it, right? See, the good Samaritan story can seem to lay this impossible bar before us, right? It's like loving those our society hates, or we see that all the Samaritan's um, trip is totally hijacked, and I'm just going to live my life totally hijacked all the time. He's out of money. He's late to where he's going. He's taking a risk, all this stuff, and it can feel so out of reach. And many of us read uh, the good Samaritan the same way we look at the news. We just feel overwhelmed when we read it, and therefore we do nothing. But what if it's as easy as learning the names of your neighbors? I I dare you. I dare you this week. Go knock on their door and be like, hey, we've been living next to each other for 10 years. And this is embarrassing. I don't know you. And what if you actually started a relationship with your neighbors around you? Jesus said stuff like, you know, give a cup of water to the least of these. You've done it to me, right? In my name. He, Jesus, y'all think about that, a cup of water. Jesus made the bar so low, so accessible to anyone that we immediately start looking for loopholes. It can't be that easy, right? What if it is? Jesus says it's worship when you love others in my name and in simple, practical ways. If this is true, then to follow Jesus means that we are people who care about the needs and concerns of others just as much as we care about our needs and concerns. So let's think about your neighborhood. Sure, you can call code enforcement, right? I mean, it's gross over there. Or you get to know them and maybe learn that the reason it's gross is because it's an elderly woman caring for her elderly husband who has cancer. That could be, or you could just call code enforcement. I mean, we could start with loving our enemies, but why don't we take baby steps? Why don't we just start loving the people that live next to us? And wouldn't you say to love someone well, you'd need to know their name? Look at this chart. This is going to terrify you. What if I gave you this chart? That house is your center. The center is your house. See it? You notice there's A, B, C in each of the boxes. What if I said this? Think of all the houses in the proximity to your house. Fill it in. All right, do you see them? Oh, yeah, there's that guy over there. There's that dude that never cuts his crust there. There's that guy that's always playing loud music. Okay, got him? What if I challenged you to write the names of all of your neighbors on slot A? Can, any, can you fill them in? Okay, and then what if I said B? I said, okay, if you can write their names... And B, I want you to write something you know about them that you couldn't learn from just like, like, like a, they drive a red car. No, that's cheating. Like, like what does he do for work? What, what are his aspirations of life? What, what's her dream of starting a family? What, is, what are they, you know? Do you, any, some of us could probably do it. And then C, what if I got real personal and said, and then ask, what, what do they think about God? Go deeper in love. You know, uh, Jay Pathak, this is from his book, he says he takes this around to conferences, thousands and thousands of people, and he says less than 10% of Christians can fill their names out. Y'all, we don't love our neighbors because we don't know them. They call this the shame chart also. He said only 3% could fill out B, and less than 1% could fill out C, like Christian conferences. This is fascinating and very uncomfortable, isn't it? If Christians actually did the thing that Jesus called us to do, dude, your world would be a different, your neighborhood would be a different place. 
The reason that Jay brought this, this chart up is he went and had a meeting with the mayor and all of the pastors of his area. And he found that as they were talking, the mayor was telling him all the things that was wrong with the town and this, we got shut-ins, we got kids, and we got this, we got this. And then at the end, the mayor said this to a group of pastors. He said, you know what? If people could just be great neighbors, 60, 70% of this stuff would be dealt with. And he said, after the meeting, they were sitting around with the pastors and Jay said, is anyone else embarrassed? A secular mayor just told us if we could just get our people to follow the second great command, that we would fix a lot of the problems. Dude, fascinating, isn't it? I, what, what do you think it means? Last question, and we'll, then we'll start wrapping it up. What do you think it means to take Jesus seriously? I know a lot of guys that think to take Jesus seriously means uh, you, you get really serious and dogmatic and harsh about theology and doctrine, right? You know that guy? Love his small group, he's fun, right? They basically think, oh, if I'm going to take Jesus seriously, it basically interprets that. Makes, that means I can be a jerk about doctrine and theology. See, is that what you think it means to follow Jesus and take him seriously? I think we've understood the phrase following Jesus only metaphorically instead of what would our lives literally look like if we lived like this man lived. So here, we'll wrap it up. Just so we know there's not a moral tale and it's not a drive-by guilting by the pastor. Let me take you to one more level of this thing and then we'll get out of here. There's another brilliant level of this whole story that I was pointing out to you. Look what the robber does to the mystery man. He strips him, beats him, leaves him for half dead. They dehumanize him. They remove his protective layers. They remove his dignity. They are violence towards him. They steal from him and leave him alone for dead. Uh, what character does that in the Bible? Who steals and kills and destroys? What character does that? Yep, you know. Let's look at what the Samaritan does. The Samaritan sees him. He goes to him, has compassion, went to him twice, it says went to him, bound his wounds, heals him, carries him, protects him, all on the Samaritan's dime, and then promises to come back. Who does that sound like? Yeah, dude. Y'all, the thief has come to rob you of your humanity, to remove your dignity, to take away your voice, to beat you into submission and leave you for dead. And almost no commentator fails to point out that Samaritan is Jesus talking about himself. Jesus came in an unexpected way to a people who hated him and rejected him like the Jews hated and rejected Samaritans. He saw us, he moved towards us, he had compassion for us, he bound us, he heals our wounds, all at his own cost and then promises he's gonna come back one day. Come on, man, the Bible. Who's the mystery man? You are. You are. You're the mystery man. And if you miss this first, what Jesus has done for you, you will never be the kind of person who loves their neighbor. If you miss what Jesus has done for you, this is a fool's errand because you will not be filled with the love of God for others because you've not received it. You have to see yourself first and foremost as the man beaten on the side of the road for whom Jesus comes and sacrifices for and heals and carries and pays his bill. Or simply put, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Everybody got it? Uh, while you hold it, um, uh, if you're comfortable, I just wanna ask you to close your eyes for a second. I want you to listen to a reading from Isaiah 58, okay? And you're gonna see that Jesus was steeped in his Bible, okay? Just listen. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is that all it is? Just to bow down his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is it just about you being humble and 
and pure? Is that what, it, is that what it's about? He says this, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer your cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Then the Lord will continually satisfy you. If you feel some incongruence in your spiritual walk, if you feel some stuckness, some plateauedness, I submit Isaiah 58 to you. 